0: Coming up on Tech Nation, Wired Magazine's editor-at-large, Stephen Levy. You may know him from hackers or crypto. He's here today with Facebook, the inside story. Then on Biotech Nation, Sandy McRae, the CEO of Sangamo Therapeutics. He talks about zinc fingers. Sangamo is working on numerous projects to introduce DNA into patients' bodies where the DNA may be missing or simply doesn't work as needed. The challenge? Besides getting it to work, this would mean a permanent change to your DNA. Are you ready for it? All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Take 5 with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2010, I spoke with then-Washington Post journalist Chunkar Vidantam about his book, The Hidden Brain, how our unconscious minds elect presidents, control markets, wage wars, and save our lives. In fact, Chunker coined the term the hidden brain. So I told him. I don't know if you've noticed. But none of my brain is showing.
2: (laughs) Good point, Morris. So the hidden brain is a metaphor. It's not meant to be a literal term, as in literally the part of the brain that's hidden. But it's a metaphor that describes a range of unconscious influences that affect people in their everyday lives. And I've used the term analogously with uh, the selfish gene, for example. It's not as if genes actually actively are selfish or they are jumping up saying, me first, me first. And in much the same way, the hidden brain is not necessarily physically hidden, but it's about the hiddenness of the brain, if you will.
0: So what's conscious is certainly known to us. It's yes. those unconscious things that you're really talking about that have a vast impact on our lives personally and collectively.
2: Correct, that's right. And I'm using the term unconscious a little differently than I think Freud would, which is why I also coined decided to coin a new term, because it's not really talking about the unconscious as this seething mass of impulses driven by sex and our parental upbringing and all of these complicated things in our psyche. Oh,
0: no, I got really excited there for a little
2: bit. <laughs> it's, it's in many ways the hidden brain that I'm writing about about and that has been researched the last 10 or 15 years is rather mundane, Uh, and the processes are actually rather mundane, but they turn out to have dramatically powerful implications and impacts in our everyday lives.
0: Now, tell us some of the things that we do unconsciously that we're not aware of.
2: Well, in some ways, the question should be turned around, Uh, and it sounds remarkable, but I think actually the better question to ask is, "Tell me the things that you do consciously," because it
0: seems (laughs) we actually know about that. It, It seems
2: as if almost everything that we do is conscious, but the more scientists have peeked into the brain and the workings of the brain, the more and more they find that much of what we think is conscious is actually driven by unconscious processes of one kind or the other. And many scientists have actually gotten to the point where they've asked themselves not so much why we have an unconscious mind, but why it is we have a conscious mind, given that the unconscious seems to be so sophisticated and able to do everything from you know judge you know whether our romantic partners are right for us, to whether we should invest in a stock, to what we should do when a fire alarm goes off, to our moral judgment. So the unconscious is really a sophisticated creature, and it affects us. It's ubiquitous. It's but wait a minute. Yeah. Everything
0: you listed there, a lot of people think they choose with their conscious mind.
2: Yes, I know. And I, I do too. And I still feel that way after I wrote and report this book, but it turns out that it's not true. We feel that we are making conscious decisions. We feel we're thinking through things carefully and intentionally. But it turns out that in much of our lives we are swayed or tugged by these subtle influences that we're not aware of. And the most devilish thing about these influences is that once we have been manipulated, we somehow rationalize to ourselves that we're the ones who came up with it, that our conscious minds are the ones who came up with these behaviors and decisions.
0: Well, we all know we make terrible decisions when we're angry, but it didn't occur to me we might be biased in our decisions when we're feeling comfortable or at peace or, or anything that, you know, joy, actually that impacts our decisions and takes away from some sort of rational deduction of what we ought to do.
2: Yes, so I think in much of our lives these emotions certainly play a huge role in how we think about things. There has been research, for example, that shows that people make more aggressive stock investments when it's sunny outside than when it's cloudy outside. And of course it makes no sense to invest in stocks depending on the weather because the weather is not a useful predictor of where the stock market is going.
0: Especially with climate disruption (laughs) shooting down our necks (laughs) here. Exactly,
2: but it's what scientists call in some ways a heuristic. People are using sort of a cue about the weather as an indicator about something else that is unrelated to the weather. And because in our everyday lives we have all these different factors kicking around at the same time, we have our perception of the weather, how we are feeling that morning, whether our dog is healthy or not, and how our children are behaving, and how we have to judge whether to invest in one stock or the other. And if we read our horoscope. And if we read our horoscope that morning, (laughs) indeed. And so all these things are happening simultaneously, and so we feel that we can focus in on any one domain and think about it carefully, but we can't because all these other things are bleeding into it at the same time, and tugging us subtly in one direction or the other.
0: Shortly after this 2010 interview, Chunkar Vidantam joined NPR. His journalism focuses on human behavior and the social sciences. You can hear him every week on the podcast, you guessed it, The Hidden Brain, at npr.org. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, Stephen Levy, Wired Magazine's editor-at-large. You may be surprised how Facebook operates in the social media world and what it does with your information and your profile. He's here today with Facebook, the inside story. Then on Biotech Nation, we hear from Sandy McRae, the CEO of Sangamo Therapeutics. They're doing extensive work introducing DNA into our bodies, which may be missing or which is somehow impaired.
2: Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global
0: software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Stephen Levy. Stephen, welcome back to Tech Nation.
3: Oh, it's always great to be on the show.
0: Well, you've always been on the inside of everything, and now you're giving us the inside of Facebook. Well, let's start sort of like what we know on the outside, 45,000 employees. Give us the skeletal public facts.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay, you know, you say you know forty thousand employees and uh, probably at least twenty thousand more uh, contractors sitting in you know rooms looking at content, which is people complained about. It's got coming on three billion people using it now on the various properties. You know, over two and a half billion just on Facebook Blue, the main app application that, that people have, and in terms of complaints about a company from the media, it's number
0: one, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's right up there. And now, of course, this also includes WhatsApp and Instagram. Anything else? Oculus. Oh, Oculus. Describe that for people who don't. So
3: Oculus is a company that makes virtual reality headsets. Right now, it's a product that's mostly used for games. But Mark Zuckerberg believes that it's going to be the next mobile in 10 years probably less now because he said a couple of years ago, it'll be 10 years from now. We'll all be walking around with some sort of thing on our heads, maybe eyeglasses to bring some version of artificial reality in front of our eyes. And uh, that'll replace our phones and everything else. So he wanted to be ahead of the game, bought a company for a couple billion dollars in 2014 and uh, has a research lab in Seattle trying to solve the problems that are involved in doing that. And when the time comes, he f- wants Facebook to be the, right in the front line. The, uh, yeah, he wants Facebook to own uh, some other reality.
0: Now you said three billion users. Let's be clear. I hear people saying, younger people saying, oh, "We don't use that," but they use Instagram, so it's about the same.
3: That's right. So that three billion is uh, all the people who use the various flavors. Of Facebook. And if you talk to a young person, the young person will probably say, No, I don't use Facebook. And you say, How about Instagram? Oh, yeah, I use that. Yeah. And Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok now are uh, the staples among younger people. And they don't seem bothered that Facebook owns it, even if they don't like Facebook. Facebook, we could talk about this in uh, the last couple of years, has brought those companies have bought closer in. They're mixing them all together. So now when you open up Instagram, you see Instagram by Facebook. It puts it in your
0: face. It did happen a few years ago where you go to log on to some site and it goes, well, you can just use your your Facebook log on or your Google log on. It's like, wait a minute, doesn't that connect everything to everybody?
3: Right. Well, they did it some time ago. They uh, gave a, a Facebook connect, it was called. And that's a way to build up their engagement and have other people basically become the recruiters for Facebook and to bring in other companies into the Facebook world. Um, At one point, Facebook, uh, when it started its platform, it envisioned it would be something the way we use mobile now, that software developers would all write their apps and it would live on top of Facebook. And that dream didn't happen because we have our mobile phones and that's where software developers write. But it's interesting, what became of that platform uh, It was launched in 2007 and, and later it just became an information exchange. Facebook would give these software developers information about people's profiles when they signed up, and then in 2010, it decided to give the developers information about the profiles of the friends who signed (laughs) up to use those apps, and that's where Cambridge Analytica happened.
0: Oh, we're going to get to that, but before we do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. lots to talk about here. Um, Let's talk about Facebook news feed. Lots of people, when they think Facebook, you're just, you know. Posting pictures of yourself on vacation and your birthday cake and all of that, but powerful in here is Facebook news feed. What is that and and what what's the power that it exerts on on the the, the human race? We'll say.
3: So this is a seminal product for Facebook, and um, I met Mark Zuckerberg in 2006. And it was
0: he twelve? Yeah, Yeah. he he
3: looked 12. (laughs) Uh, He was, uh, I think, maybe 21 at the time. And uh, I wanted to meet him because I'd heard he had this successful college network. I was writing a story for Newsweek back then about uh, how Web 2.0, how the web was becoming, uh, you know, uh, more people oriented and people would put up content and companies take advantage of that. So I thought he'd be good to quote in the story. And we arranged to meet at a technology conference, a PC forum, and I asked him a couple questions, really softball things like how many colleges does, uh, have Facebook or how many people use it. And he didn't answer me; he just stared at me. It was very unnerving. And finally, he loosened up and answered a couple questions, but um, uh, it was an unusual back and forth. And I later learned, was I did this book. That at the time, he was planning to change Facebook uh, totally from being a college network limited to students to something that everyone in the world would use, and that was called open registration, and also build the news feed. And he was uh, designing it writing his thoughts out in a private journal he kept. And uh, I later learned about this journal. And if I'm writing a, you're writing a book about Facebook, boy, you really want to see a journal like that. Um, but I heard he destroyed it, and I thought I'd never see it. But actually, during the course of this book, I managed to get hold of a sizable chunk of the key notebook. It was called the Book of Change, written in Mark's handwriting. That um, someone had copy a copy that they a
0: scan a digital scan.
3: Yeah. That, well, they yeah they sent me copied pages, and. Uh, and I was able to see into Mark's head, into his psyche, how he designed this product. Now, when they released the newsfeed, which we're all familiar of it, it's a stream on the front page of our Facebook book, and it has all kinds of stories. They're called stories, but they're posts, and it could be a link to a news article. It could be something your friend posted on vacation. It could be saying, an ad. Yeah, an ad, <laughs> of course. Um, uh, and it could be uh, a video. Um, pretty much anything, and it's addictive. You sit and watch it, and it takes you down rabbit holes. Um, And when he first introduced this to Facebook, the users uh, who were college students then, uh, they went crazy, not in a positive way. They were angry because they felt their privacy was violated. Previously, in the original Facebook, uh, when people posted information, it would go on their profile page, and you had to go and look at, you know, what's Mary's profile page and see if there were changes maybe she posted a picture maybe she had some new friends maybe she was uh, in a relationship now and then you would go to the next friend and look at that friend's pro- profile page when the news feed came up this all information was pushed to you it was like broadcast Like so if someone broke up with a boyfriend Bang. or girlfriend everyone would know it instantly and people felt that was a violation of their privacy and in typical fashion or what was the be typical fashion market pushed this out without giving people tools to control how people would see it. To him, it was like what's the difference? The people post this information anyway. He didn't realize that the way it was distributed changed that and people might not want uh everyone to instantly see uh what they posted. So uh he made those little changes. Not too many people use those uh privacy Controls. protections. Yeah. 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 Um but uh People wound up loving the newsfeed, and Mark took a lesson from that, which was you could push something out that ticks people off, uh, but they'll go over it. Get over it, and you could be right, and Call a protest could be wrong. <laughs> right, and yeah,
0: and he's gonna do this. Yeah. Just don't so, don't do
3: that. <laughs> so time and time again, he would have new products, and he would want to push them out. And even though people around him might warn him, "Hey." This isn't a great idea. We could, you know, uh, people might feel the privacy is violated. There's other reasons we shouldn't do it. Or sometimes this is just wrong. And Mark would say, let's push it out anyway, and we'll see what happens later.
0: Well, that's one subtext throughout all of this book. And it's many pages. What do we have, 500 pages here? It's
3: over 500 pages. 500
0: pages. Very impressive. Very impressive. And certainly in weight and not to mention content. Um, But this constant pushing out of new technology. We tend to look at Facebook, one big black box, maybe a couple of things happen, but whether it's apparent to you as the user, it's also there are internal things going on in which a lot of new technology was out there measuring who's using what. How do you connect this to that?
3: Right, right. Very early on, they started a research group. And the research group was part of uh, the division of facebook called growth so yeah I
0: think I know what it does <laughs> yeah yeah
3: so yeah. but it
0: was growth uh, wasn't growth of of income it was growth, growth of, of, of how many people are how on these how many people things?
3: users that got there and you know the other part of growth is first is get them to sign up and then the other thing is keep them there until they have enough friends to get a an satisfying experience or an addictive experience So retention is a big part of growth too. And I really get into this thing called people you may know, which I think (laughs) Facebook users are all familiar with. It's like, it's like lineup of people, you know, uh, some of whom, you know, you might say, well, how did Facebook know that I knew this person? And sometimes someone comes up and saying, wait a minute, I don't know this person at all. And then you might do some research and find out, well wow, you might have met this person or this person does have a connection to you and it's sort of mysterious and at one point i talk about how uh people discovered that fellow patients of their psychiatrist were suggestive <gasps> of them on people you may know. Um, and it's just one example of the growth team used a lot of things that really pushed the boundaries of what's considered proper. So they, they scraped all sorts of information. They, they look at your email, they look at profiles that you look at. Uh, they look at, you know, your, follow your eyes. <laughs> yeah. To come up with something because um, they want to make sure that uh, If someone just got on Facebook, they would be connected with people. So some of the people in that row of people you may know are newbies who need friends.
0: And they're helping the whole thing grow. And of course, you know, they have the technology to do that, but maybe they don't think through it. If I had a dollar for every time they wanted me to befriend my ex-husband's wife, <laughs> I would be a wealthy woman. There it is. That's a person you <laughs> so may know. Why do you keep asking? Well, you've got a lot of people in common. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so uh, Maybe she needs a friend. <laughs> oh, she's a good friend. I just don't want to be on Facebook with her. <laughs> she you know, doesn't want a- to be with me. Well, when I asked
3: Mark about that, because it's interesting, one person told me that he was complaining about the way Uh, People were suggested on people. You may know because they would suggest people to you that needed friends were needy And when if you said yes, she's
0: really gonna get angry If you
3: (laughs) if if you said yes to one of those people Their posts would be all over your newsfeed even though you didn't necessarily want to hear from them um, They'd rank it high and it'd be on your newsfeed and it would degrade your experience So I asked mark about that. I said what about that charge? And to my surprise, he said, yes, that's the case. But he said, you should think of it as kind of a tax that you would accept that person and and look at that person's uh, news items as something for the benefit of the network as a whole. Right. It's actually something for the benefit of Facebook's building the network (laughs) (laughs) as a whole. But maybe not your experience. But I thought that was an interesting window into the way he was viewing the product.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Stephen Levy, Wired Magazine's editor-at-large. You may know him from his former positions as the longtime technology journalist and senior editor at Newsweek, or from one of his seven books, including Hackers and Crypto. He's here today with Facebook, the inside story. Well, lots of people have scraped Facebook pages. I mean, famously, British data journalist David McCandless scraped a year's worth of Facebook pages for signs of people breaking up. Change of relationship status, public postings of what happened. Mondays are bad. Mm. Two weeks before Christmas, very bad. A lot of breakups. Don't have to buy a present. It's really good. Just before the long summer holidays. And, you know, get ready for it. Breakup coming But nobody breaks up on Christmas. That'd be just too cruel. I mean, it's hysterical looking at this. So It's like, what's the harm in that? Well, the
3: the information, you know, can be pretty, um, you know, telling. Um, So one researcher um, at Cambridge University, who actually was a colleague of the guy who was the culprit in Cambridge Analytica, um, he did a study of likes. And he found... The, with 15 likes, you would know someone as well as a casual friend. With 30 likes, you'd know him some, someone that's a better friend. With 100 likes, you'd know him, someone who is really close to you. And 300 likes, you would know a person better than your spouse. <laughs> and and this is how. And this was all public at that point that anyone could scrape Facebook and get get those likes about them. And when the paper came out, Facebook tried to kill the paper, uh, but they they weren't able to do that.
0: Move number one. Yeah. So then (laughs) so then
3: um, they made the likes um, not uh, visible, visible. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't see anyone's likes. Of course, Facebook. So all the likes.
0: Well, what's the difference between David McCandless and data scientists and people looking at likes uh, and what they've done and what Facebook and Cambridge Analytica did?
3: Well, remember earlier I talked about how Facebook gave all this information to software developers. And these included people who would even put those little silly surveys on Facebook, that's uh, a software developer that's considered uh, uh, one of those people. So, when in 2010 they came out with this thing called Open graph, you know, version one uh, on the platform, and it came along with this product called Instant Personalization, another product that people inside Facebook told Mark, don't do this, he he did it anyway, and they gave all that friend information away. So if you, as, the, as one Oxford, or sorry, Cambridge University uh, researcher did, you do a survey and people say, okay, in order to do the survey, I'm going to let you see my profile, but they also gave away the profiles of all their friends. There's about 130 friends on average for East Facebook user. So it doesn't take a lot of people to get big Everybody. So he paid about 200,000 people, a tiny sum of money. He got funded by Cambridge Analytica, uh, this company that was a mix between this UK military contractor and the biggest funder of extreme right-wing stuff in the US. And... Uh, with those 200,000 survey takers. Uh, he didn't really care what the survey said. Uh, he just got their friend information and got the profiles of about 87 million people. With, and that was perfectly okay with Facebook. That's the thing to remember. He was within the rules. As a matter of fact, he was. Uh, he would go to Facebook's campus. They would pay him as a, as a consultant. He, he was in their good graces. Um, what he did not do to win the good graces is violate Facebook's policy and then turn Turn that stuff over, uh, he sold it essentially to Cambridge Analytica, which then used that. Um, it's unclear how much, but in their campaigns to first elect try to elect Ted Cruz and then Donald Trump. Um, they worked with the Trump campaign, uh, and they had all this data about, about people. And the way, you know, we could talk about how the Trump campaign used Facebook, but essentially, uh, it was a very data-rich operation that some people feel was decisive in the election.
0: And to be clear, we'll get there, but, but to be clear, this gentleman was able to pay people legitimately to do the survey in exchange for getting their profile and the profile of their friends, and that was fine with Facebook as long as he used it. Right. But the moment he resold it, then he broke the license right. or the contract right. or whatever it was. Right.
3: And I found out in the book that, you know, um, some of these, you know, privacy changes, people at Facebook were saying, you know, we shouldn't do this. And they, Mark said, we're going to do it. And then they said, well, listen, we have to be very vigilant to make sure that when this data goes into the hands of software developers, they don't do this. They don't take it somewhere else. And, And, but they did not aggressively audit those software developers. It would be too much. And as a matter of fact, Cambridge Analytica wasn't the only company who had that. It turned out there was about 40,000 software developers who had this kind of information, and who knows where that data went.
0: And you use the idea of audit. Well, we should audit what they're doing with it. You're building technology to enable people to do it, but they didn't put anything that was traceable, so they could see if that person turned data over to somebody else. You couldn't just look at the data and trace it. It's perfectly acceptable and easy to put watermarks and things, so you can you can trace right. where where it came from and what the source is. That wasn't put in there,
3: right? Right. Or or put phony you know uh, profiles in there and, and see if they turn up anywhere. Just the way that sort of map makers uh, sometimes make up little towns and to make sure that no one steals their maps that they someone else's. You know a uh, map has a make believe town in it. they know it's stolen.
0: well, we have to say that since the twenty sixteen presidential election um there's been a reputational meltdown. You use yeah. that 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 term here. let's talk about fake news and misinformation and mark
3: okay um well, so what's called fake news, which really refers to uh, stories that didn't happen uh being circulated uh and appearing like legitimate news um and you know uh if you're very digitally literate and you know news newsworth- you know you, you, uh news literacy uh, you could tell them apart but it turns out a lot of people don't have the tools or don't care to
0: use it's that a kind lot of, of work. a lot of work
3: yeah yeah and uh and That came about at Facebook. Again, what I try to do in the book time and again is tell the story of Facebook, and in the story you learn how these things came about. So right now we're all talking about how can Facebook minimize fake news? How are their efforts going? But I wanted to look at how Facebook became what it was so fake news can proliferate the way it was. So I trace it down to those decisions that Mark and others made. Um, So by the time of the election in 2016, Facebook was a very rich platform for this because uh, an article purporting to come from the Denver Guardian would look as authentic as something coming from the New York Times.
0: You've been listening to Stephen Levy. He's here today with Facebook, the inside story. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation is One Word on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as in other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show on Biotech Nation, we hear about zinc fingers and their potential to permanently change the DNA of patients. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Stephen Levy, Wired Magazine's editor-at-large. He's here today with Facebook, the inside story.
3: So by the time of the election in 2016, Facebook was a very rich platform for this because uh, uh, an purporting to come from the Denver Guardian would look as authentic as something coming from the New York Times. Now, there was an article from the Denver Guardian about how uh, you know, an FBI agent looking at Hillary's emails was murdered. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, but then the Denver Guardian didn't happen. It was a make-believe publication. That it, unless you lived in Denver, it sounded real. Uh, you tracked down the address. It was a parking lot in Denver. And it turned out, there was a guy who lived in Los Angeles who just churned out fake news for profit. Uh, it turned, you know, it turns out that if you put out fake news about Hillary, he found, um, you know, uh, anti-Hillary, it was much more profitable than anti-Trump. So even though he was a liberal, he. Put out anti trump stuff, and then uh, there was a town in Macedonia that you know where a lot of people are driving big cars because they came out with fake news and uh, when people clicked on it, it went to their page with a lot of ads and then of course there was the Russians that put out their own disinformation campaign, which Facebook totally missed um, during the two thousand and sixteen election. The disturbing thing is that when People started complaining about it, and you know, by the end of the election, you know, the end of the campaign, there were a lot of complaints. And so Obama was literally complaining about Facebook uh, when he went on the campaign trail for Hillary. They made a conscious decision to do nothing. The head of their Washington policy uh, office was a Republican who felt very strongly that uh, you know his friends on the conservative side uh, would object if they. They took down the fake news and he said, we don't want to tilt the scale of the election. Of course, by doing nothing, they were tilting the scale of the election. Um, and he successfully argued uh, at Facebook that they should do nothing about the fake news. Um, and it just blew up and proliferated during the last weeks of the election.
0: I have to say that uh, I'm one of these people that separate government from society. What does society want to do? And government is supposed to be its agent. I know it sounds very naive, but that's how I look at things. Society is not in the service of government. Um, And so related to what you're talking about, I'm sitting there thinking also that this creates schisms in society. You know, that you're breaking, people are believing things that you know are not true and you could have done something about.
3: Right. And the other thing is that uh, Facebook's algorithms uh, promoted polarization. That content that gets you mad would be circulated more widely than stuff which just informs you.
0: Now, one of the signatures of technology today uh, along these lines is that it's rapid, almost instant, global dissemination and expansion and, and Facebook was going as far as they could, as fast as they could. And I was really fascinated by this sort of bull in a China shop expansion of Facebook into countries and cultures as fast as possible. You write about a conversation with Chris Cox with several, several positions at Facebook. Uh, do you recall the conversation I'm talking about?
3: That's the one where he was telling me about how people in uh, Myanmar get their news from Facebook. Bingo. And he, he thought that was a great thing, you know, but Facebook went into Myanmar before anyone in the company could speak Burmese, which, you know, uh, Myanmar is now what we call, what we used to call Burma. And uh, the authoritarian regime started posting content uh, against the minority group there. Uh, it caused riots and people died. And... Uh, Facebook eventually thought, well, maybe we should get someone to speak that. But very few couldn't police all the content, couldn't look at the content and see what was urging violence. And it wasn't until 2015 that Facebook even managed to translate its rule book of what content is acceptable on Facebook, what is so offensive it has to be taken down, into Burmese. So, you know, it took a few years even after that before they even translated the rule book.
0: Technology can't be king. You can't put the technology out there ahead of what is his context, what is the behavior. Yeah, And that's an yeah. example
3: of the move fast and break things motto of Facebook. It, it was a flag of pride to Facebook uh, that they move fast and would fix things later and, and maybe apologize later. But when it has serious consequences like this, uh, it's not the dorm room anymore. And Facebook was very slow to pick up on that.
0: Stephen, you quote Mark Zuckerberg. He said, What's happening in Myanmar is a terrible tragedy, and we need to do more. Actually, I think they needed to do less. <laughs> <You know?
3: laughs> well, they needed to do less to get in there, but I think it becomes a refrain in the book. So I had access to the people at Facebook, and, and when I talked to them, I I let them speak for themselves about uh, what they were doing. I wanted their reaction to the things I found, the things other journalists were coming up with, um, and you know, in some cases, uh, you could see how um, ineffective, you know, how uh, inadequate their defense is, and in this case. It's uh, the the refrain is we have more to do. We have work to do. We're working hard at this. Um, But uh, it's a five alarm fire. And, you know, uh, they it's not just working harder. It's uh, how do we get there in the first place? And that's really what I looked at in the story is uh, all the things that led to this very difficult and sometimes tragic situation.
0: Well, three years you worked on this. I guess even more if you count everything together. Three years you were talking to everybody. Um, over that time, how would you how would you gauge how more responsible they came? And we are now in a presidential election year.
3: Yeah. So, well, clearly after um, they were called to account after the election, it wasn't just because of what happened during the election with the fake news, it was everything else that people have been complaining about on Facebook, that Facebook was skating by, privacy violations, um, <clears throat> data protection, the use of data to, um, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> target people with ads, and sometimes, you know, the identifiers that Facebook would use would leak out. Um, so it was, you know, just a number of things, that Facebook finally had to answer for. And they realized that they have to do more. Um, I was able to chart some of the problems that that came from that by the split in the company. Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer, was in charge of one part of the company. It was policy and sales and uh, dealing with Washington and even security. And Mark was in charge of products and engineering, the things that he loved and didn't care about the rest. And that And that was a big problem because he didn't take a CEO attention on those things. Now he knows that was wrong. He's paying more attention. But they're taking an engineering approach to it. I don't think they've changed the fundamental nature of Facebook and rolled that back. And um, maybe that's what really needs to be done in order to... uh, really change the problems that Facebook has
0: well today with social media and not only just the idea of social media and what it can do but it's filled in (laughs) and it's growing what would be take a shot at this what would be in a social media sense responsible information behavior to your mind
3: well I, I I think that the people can trust what what they see and they they wouldn't be deceived um uh, facebook, you know you talk about data facebook 's business model is very much based on an incredible amount of data that they have, and historically they bought other data to pair it with it to give advertisers an unbelievably accurate way to target customers and in a way they say their their argument. It makes sense to say, hey, by doing this, we're able to show you more relevant ads. Well, if it comes to showing you something that you didn't know existed, but something you really would like buying, that's true. But when it comes to someone being able to target your weaknesses and manipulate you, that's not good. That's not good for you. And it puts Facebook in a position of enabling toxic behavior. Um, and it hurts not only its, its users, but the general politic.
0: Now, I have a few quick questions for you. I mean, you did talk about the Mark Zuckerberg stare when you asked him right. the questions now, and he still has that. But he also says he doesn't, but everyone says he doesn't blink.
3: <laughs> uh, sometimes with, you know, he'll look at you and he doesn't stare as much as he used to sometimes you ask him a tough question and you get the stare you know, <laughs> at one point I asked him if he thought that Cheryl let him down because a lot of the problems came from her side of the company and I got that stare before he very graciously I thought uh, said well we were all t- to blame you know, it's not just Cheryl. Um, and he, he took some responsibility himself. And when he does look at you that way, it seems like he's never going to blink. But um, I, I think I have seen him blink, too.
0: You're tough. You're tough, Stephen. Now, apparently, he's giving 99% of his stock to a foundation because he cares about his child now and, and her future and, and maybe other children coming along. Um, okay, so if he gives 99% of his stock to a foundation and the stock ends up being worth nothing. Are he, his wife, and child homeless? I mean, see out in the street? <laughs> well, I, I think, I, What's the 99% of this?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, well, you know, you can live very nicely on Mark Zuckerberg's 1%. I'm not sure it's 99 but it's the, the, the vast majority of his wealth he wants to go to. It's actually not technically a foundation. It's like a, an LLC. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he says that way that they can make investments and be more effective in the goal. His goal, he says, is to eradicate... Uh, disease by the end of this century, which if he does it, that, that'll be pretty good. Uh, but right now, uh, uh, it, it isn't uh, donating that money all at once. Uh, so he's he still got it, and he's still got his Facebook stock, which is uh, so sufficient, particularly in the voting stock, that no one can tell him what to do. He could overrule the board of directors at any point. <laughs>
0: Now, one of the things he contributed to from whatever this thing is, foundation, LLC, whatever, were a lot of entrepreneurs, small entrepreneurs. You describe a visit to Nigeria, all these entrepreneurs, and that's... I want to say that's so Silicon Valley. Hmm. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, entrepreneurship they, they, the, is not right. going to save the well, world. No, well, these they are entre- a lot of good things. But. Yeah,
3: the entrepreneurs we visited in Nigeria, that was actually the first thing I, I did for the book is went to uh, Light Lagos, Nigeria with Mark. Um, he was talking to entrepreneurs who were doing software that he hoped that they would be developers for Facebook, um, and just to encourage them that we did visit one place that, uh, CZI, Chan Zuckerberg initiative, which is that LLC, uh, was funding, which was a place to teach people, um, from the continent coding and get them jobs at, uh, U S companies and companies around the world. Interestingly, um, When we went from one startup incubator to this other company, we walked a few blocks. um, And that just wasn't done in Nigeria for a billionaire executive to walk the streets. And he won the hearts. Of the Nigerians, and I, I later concluded that this visit in uh, late summer 2016 was peak Facebook, when everyone loved Mark, and and everybody
0: you know, loved Facebook. Yeah, and
3: everyone loved Facebook, and it was only a couple months later that the election happened, and the bit really flipped.
0: Do you think with this coming election that there have been enough changes that Facebook won't be the the villain it was it was portrayed as in the last presidential election?
3: I think there'll still be problems. Facebook has done a lot to address uh, some of its, you know, uh, the things they missed in the 2016 Last time ran Election. But the adversaries uh, may not do the same things. They, they're advanced too. And they, they know what Facebook has done to fix the problems. So they're still advancing. Uh, and the problem is that Facebook is still Facebook. It's still OK for you or I to post something which is false. It's still okay for you and I you know, to, to say, you know, here's an article I saw in the Denver Guardian. You know, uh, what they'll do in that case, if enough people interact with it, uh, and they say it's a problem, someone reports it, is they'll send it to fact checkers, who will say, oh, uh, this is wrong, and then they'll give some extra information, and maybe they'll even show it to fewer people, it'll be a lower ranking. But it still will be on Facebook.
0: Now, in your final interview with Mark Zuckerberg, after three years of talking, and he kept talking to you. That's right. That was very interesting. um, He keeps seeing Facebook and social media as technologies that enable a lot of good, you know, and that the positives outweigh the negatives. I just don't get a sense from what I'm reading there and what I'm seeing elsewhere that he really gets it, that he gets how negative the negatives are. Is that true?
3: that you you said it exactly right that it's an engineering mindset leads them to say well look at the numbers you know so much more is good on facebook than you know uh than what, what what's really bad um but he's not in the dorm room anymore and there's serious consequences like elections uh like you know violence in in other other, other countries of what get circulated on Facebook, so it's not like a bumper car problem where you know if there's a, a a problem, you know you just get like you know like knock knock back for a second. I only hit my
0: wife once a year. Yeah, yeah,
3: it's more like a plane crash problem where you know uh, the way they built the platform, um, uh, the what what goes on on Facebook is too big for them to totally you know uh, control. Um, even though they're spending millions and millions of dollars to try to keep the worst out, uh, he admits it's always going to be a a cat-and-mouse game. And that isn't because it's so tough to do it now. It's because that's the way the platform developed. That's the way in 2008 and 2009, when Mark wanted to buy Twitter and they wouldn't sell to him, and he said, I'm going to bring in some aspects of Twitter into the news feed, Facebook became less of a place where you would just be learning about what your friends are up to and your family and people you know, and learning more about, you know, news, whether it's true or not.
0: Well, Stephen, this is great. There's so much in this book, uh, not just about Facebook, but about how we got here in general, and so uh, really a fascinating read. Thanks so much. I hope you come back and see me again.
3: Yeah, next book. (laughs) Next
0: book. Be here. You got it. My guest today is Stephen Levy. The book is Facebook, The Inside Story. It's published by Blue Rider Press, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'd like to take a minute and note that twice in this last interview, Stephen Levy saw engineering thinking or the engineering mindset as not considering the consequences of the technology that we build and deploy. It struck a dissonant chord with me both times he said it, but I wasn't prepared to respond in the moment. There's no doubt that in the instances Stephen cites that there appeared to be little or no comprehension of the negative consequences which could occur in advance. In addition, there was no rapid response when the realization that negative, if unintentional, consequences ensued. This goes back to what makes an apology. It's not, Sorry, I'll try to do better in the future. It's, I'm truly sorry. Here's how I will try to fix it or make up for what I did. And here's how I will avoid making this mistake again in the future. That's the road to responsible engineering. I also want to say that the behavior we talked about in the interview does not describe the great majority of engineers I know. They're concerned with safety, with sustainability, and with other issues relative to the consequence of the use of the technology they build. Then on biotechnation, daring medical treatments that actually change your DNA. That's right. Your DNA is permanently changed, which is called for in a number of conditions, such as hemophilia, where patients lack blood factor eight. This is one technology where potential consequences are definitely taken under consideration. And now to our interview. Almost everyone's heard of the gene editing technology of CRISPR, which has been a cause for excitement in the news for the past several years. But many people have not heard about a protein called a zinc finger. I asked Sandy McRae, the CEO of Sangamo Therapeutics, what are zinc fingers?
4: Zinc fingers are the original way to do gene editing and are the way that are in the clinic at the moment. We all have zinc fingers in our body. They are the things that control whether genes start or stop or go quickly or go slowly. And we just borrowed them from a technology found in Cambridge in the UK. And we've added a variety of extra bits to them to allow us to cut or to control DNA.
0: So, as always, I was right. You don't even know what I'm going to say I'm right about. But when CRISPR came out, I said, well, there's going to be lots of, if not already, ways to edit Genes. So CRISPR is not consistent with editing genes. It wasn't the first time ever, and it won't be the last. And now we're talking about in Sangamo Therapeutics, you're using zinc fingers, working with some major pharmaceutical companies to do gene editing all it, for medical purposes.
4: Absolutely. We have the, the luxury of having many bits of DNA that we can attack and edit and, and help and cure. And so we can't do that all by ourselves, no matter the efforts of one company. And so the best way to get medicines to patients is to work in partnership with others. And that's why we made the deliberate decision to move forward our own projects ourselves, but also to partner with other companies, because uh, this is going to change medicine. In the three years that I've been at Sangamo, I've watched this wave of gene therapy come through. I've heard the enthusiasm of CRISPR, which is a fine technique, which will eventually get there. But what is changing is the belief that we can, we can address important medical conditions by changing the DNA of the patient.
0: So you've got nine clinical trials going right now, uh, some in partnership with some of the big pharmaceutical companies. Let's talk about one or two of those and how zinc fingers are being used within that therapy.
4: So I think the best example would be beta thalassemia, which is a rare blood disease that uh, happens very much in, in the Mediterranean down into parts of, of uh, Asia, what we do is we replicate a condition that happens in, in rarely in normal humans where fetal hemoglobin is switched on. And if fetal hemoglobin is switched on, the patient doesn't get beta-thalassemia. So we copy this human example and edit the cells so as the fetal hemoglobin is turned back on again. And with the fetal hemoglobin turned on, the patient has an alternative form of hemoglobin and their blood count remains up. And so it's an example of understanding the biology and then using the technology to do simple things and do it well that will then relieve the patient's condition.
0: Now, in that case, do you take the patient's own cells?
4: Currently, the way we do it is we take the patient's own cells out, edit them in a test tube, and then give them back to the patient. In another programme we do with with Gilead for oncology, CAR-T, which people might have heard of, um, what we're planning to do is take cells out of a healthy patient, edit them, and then make it available in lots of test tubes to go to lots of patients. So we make the cells so as they aren't specific for one patient, but can be given to many. And that to me is important because it means that the medicine will be available quickly, it will be cheaper because it will be in a form that be, won't be will be like having a suit made for yourself. It will be one off the rack. And it will allow us to test a, a range of oncology targets that I think could make a big difference.
0: For the listener right now, it's like, wait a minute, you just talked about something uh, in the blood. And now you talked about something in cancer. I think we've gotten used to the fact that a lot of this gene editing has been in the oncology field. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's, it's applicable to any condition for which gene editing will be supportive.
4: So I think that's a really interesting point. We all accept um, the benefit-risk of oncology treatment because it's at the end of life and people are are more courageous about what they do at the end of life. We look at this as genomic medicine, which which is a wider thing. It includes gene editing, gene therapy, cellular control. But still we have to decide as a society and as people, the benefit and the risk. And so I think um, for now, gene editing, gene therapy, genomic medicine has to be for important medical conditions where the patient doesn't really have an easy alternative and where the benefit outweighs any long-lasting safety concern. We haven't seen any safety concern. We haven't seen a safety concern in animals. But because what we do is permanent, and once we've, the patient has taken the treatment and adaptation has happened, we can't take it out easily. We have to be sure that the benefit the patient will get is great enough. If you look at haemophilia, which is the leading gene therapy condition, there's now, I imagine, hundreds of patients that have now taken it and no longer have to take factor eight. So their life has been revolutionised by this. So although there is an alternative that they can take, injecting themselves once or twice or three times a week or even daily, the gene therapy avoids that and completely changes that patient's place in, in their life. They no longer have to think about their disease every day. And that kind of revolutionary change, if done prudently and carefully, it could be applied to many other diseases. We'll start with the serious ones and gradually move out as we gain more and more information and can be assured that it's safe.
0: You may not know the answer to this. We, in general, as a scientific community, may not know the answer to this. But when we make those permanent gene changes, let's say in the, in the case of the hemophiliac, if in their offspring, from there forward, does it carry forward?
4: No, and we're very careful about that. There's two forms of editing of therapy. There's somatic cells and germline. The somatic cells are cells that you carry within your body and you don't pass on to anyone else. And the germlines are the ones that are in our testes and our ovary and pass on to our children. It's widely discussed and accepted that we should only look at uh, somatic cells at the moment and not at germlines. And we should look at somatic cells, we should do that differential because... We don't know enough about this treatment now, and we need to be sure that it is right for the patient that we're treating and not think about their children and their children's children. Perhaps one day that will be a discussion that we all want to have, but for now it should be about somatic cells and consenting and treating the patient in front of me.
0: And until and unless this would be a benefit from there forward, we don't need to deal with that.
4: We don't need to deal with it, And, and there's been... A coming together of the community both um, academics and industry to say we're clear this is what we do and in America you can't get funding to do germline editing so there's a very clear government uh, position on it. It is something that we will learn by doing somatic cell editing and people I hope will realize the benefit to patients and and the important diseases can be addressed and we'll all grow more comfortable with it but it's a thing for the future.
0: This is all very new in so many ways, uh, all of the cell therapies. Mm. Has it become easier to enter these trials and conduct them now that we have a number of them
4: underway? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Patients like certainty. They want to win. And they want to get the the best form of medicine. So when it starts off, patients are reluctant to be first, and we can understand that. And then if you're in a dose-ranging trial, they would prefer to be in the highest dose so as they have the best chance. And if they see a medicine that's already got results or proven, they prefer to take that. So um, as more and more of these medicines are showing their effect... I think there's a greater confidence and a greater comfort even in the words and the discussion and the consent. So the world is moving quickly and carefully and in a regulated way and patients and patient support groups who often advise these patients on what they think about it are coming together to help us do this.
0: Well, Sandy, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back and keep us updated.
4: I look forward to it.
0: Sandy McRae is the CEO of Sangamo Therapeutics. More information is available at sangamo.com. That's S-A-N-G-A-M-O, sangamo.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.